Hi, it's Eric again. If it feels like I'm always asking you for money, it's because I'm always asking you for money. That's because producing a high-quality podcast like Making Gay History costs a lot. Between ten dollars and $20,000 for each episode, for the audio and all the extra resources and archival photos you'll find on our website. One way to help us keep bringing LGBTQ history to life through the voices of the people who lived it is to join our Patreon community, $5 a month or $60 a year. And for that, you get a front row seat to my interviews with present-day history makers, behind-the-scenes production conversations, and delicious clips from my archive that we couldn't include in regular episodes. Right now, we have 200 Patreon followers. That's just a fraction of our many thousands of listeners. Can you help us double that by the 55th anniversary of Stonewall this coming Pride Month? We can't do what we do without all our supporters. And if you aren't one already, I hope you will be soon. Or, if you are already, get one of your friends to sign up to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. That's patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. Or just go to makinggayhistory.com and hit the Patreon subscription button on our homepage. Thanks so much. Now, on to the episode you've chosen to hear. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. I first met Morty Manford at his family's house in May 1989. I was there to interview his mother, Jean. Jean had co-founded an organization for parents of gay people in 1972 that became PFLAG. If you haven't heard that interview, I encourage you to go back to our first season and listen to it. Now. We'll wait. Done? Good. Now back to Morty. He had a big role in founding the group for parents of gay people. But it was in that first interview that I learned Morty was a major gay rights activist in his own right. So I came back seven months later and met with Morty on his own for several hours. There was a lot to cover. By the time I interviewed him, Morty's gay activist days of the 1970s were behind him. He graduated from Columbia University, gotten a law degree, spent four years at the Legal Aid Society, and now, at 39, was working for the New York State Attorney General's office. So here's the scene. I'm back at the Manford family home in the Flushing neighborhood of Queens, New York. Morty meets me at the front door. He has a pile of curly brown hair that frames his pale, thin face. He looks tired. His mother, Jean, is in the kitchen talking on the phone. Morty's dog periodically stops by to nuzzle Morty and check out the stranger at their dining room table. I clip my microphone to Morty's blue button-down shirt and press record. Anyway, I need to put a tag on this tape, which I forgot to do before getting here. Interview with Morty Manford, Saturday, December 9th, 12 noon. Uh, Location is Flushing, New York. Interviewer is Eric Marcus. Thank you very much for seeing me again, by the way. Why Why don't you eat first before it gets cold? I can always yeah. reheat it, but okay. um, you want me to talk or I'm something? Fine. No, no, we actually we can leave this off. Uh, and we'll be right back after this message. Uh, I suppose my gay life pretty much revolved around my uh, around going to the bars in those days. There were raids. Were you ever caught up in one? The only one I remember actually being inside the bar was the Stonewall. So were you frightened about the raid? 
I was anxious. Everybody was anxious, mm -hmm. not knowing whether we were going to be arrested or what was happening next. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say I was afraid, but it was it was a nervous mood that mm -hmm. set over the place. I was watching. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, I, w I wasn't looking for a fight, but right. uh, I personally didn't try. Mm -hmm. Did you leave? But it was a very emotional. Um, turning point for me. Uh-huh. Yeah, once once they started attacking people and, and forcing people onto the side streets and, and, and trying to divide, I, I stayed a little bit. I uh, basically tried to get out of the way and uh, I can't claim credit for the, the small acts of violence that took place. I didn't, I didn't break any windows. I didn't, I wasn't the one who had a knife and cut the tires on the paddy wagon. Somebody did. I didn't hit a cop. I didn't okay. get hit by a cop. How did you make the transition from observer to activist? <clears throat> this festering wound, the anger of uh, oppression and discrimination, I think was coming out very fast at the point of Stonewall. Mm -hmm. There were a few things going on. The following uh, uh, week, 10 days later, I uh, went to Philadelphia where there was a annual picket line in front of Liber uh, uh, Independence Hall. Mm -hmm. So you and, marched, and in, marched that in that and I, I think I wore sunglasses. Uh, to hide your identity? When I saw, yes, then when I saw cameras, I, I, I think I turned my face away. I, but but it, it, was, it was a process of starting to uh, deal with it a, a little bit at a time. A few days later, I had a, a very personal sexual crisis with somebody that I was infatuated with and I attempted suicide. I think all of my own conflict was starting to come to the surface and uh, take on more concrete form and even though I had been actively gay for almost a year at this point, there was still the struggle going on. It was too much. <sighs> It was enough to the point that I uh, took a large quantity of pills. Yeah, I wound, I wound up in the hospital. And, so you saw a lot uh, of psychiatrists? Bug doctors, they call them. Bug doctors? Actually, I think I learned that la word from Morris Kite. You've never met Morris? I've interviewed oh, yeah. Morris. Morris calls me regularly with updates. Yeah. Morris is one of a kind. Yes, that's the way to put it, exactly. It, it was not uncommon in those days oh. for gay people to attempt suicide. Oh, a good half of the gay men I've interviewed have tried to kill themselves. Well, the um, I think it was the following February, I um, was sitting with some friends having a sandwich or something at Mama's Chicken Rib, a popular gay coffee shop on Greenwich Avenue, and this demonstration went by hundreds of people with protest signs and chanting and obviously a gay demonstration, and uh, said to my friends at the table, let's join it. Nobody wanted to join it. I said, well, I'll see you later. I wasn't going to let the parade go by. The purpose of this march was to protest police conduct at the raid of a bar called the Snake Pit. One of the customers who was taken prisoner was, I think, an Argentinian national with uh, illegal status 
who leaped from the second-story window of the precinct in a panicked attempt to escape deportation and became impaled on a picket fence. The moral outrage was, was certainly very personal in my own heart. At the conclusion, uh, a number of people all went over to Gay Liberation Front headquarters at 14th Street and 6th Avenue. I went back with them. There were some speeches. And um, I really was left uninspired by the political line of what was going on. But somebody at that meeting mentioned the Gay Activists Alliance to me. And I asked a little bit more about it. When do they meet? Where do they meet? And then uh, went to the next weekly meeting of the Gay Activists Alliance. The political uh, discussion was uh, very appealing. We, we, we truly felt we were being a part of history. We were doing something new. We were doing something righteous. Uh, we were um, part of the generation of committed youth. What were you doing now? What was it that you uh, were hoping to do? Wherever there was anti-gay and anti-lesbian discrimination, we would oppose it. There was a vast range of discriminatory policies that we were addressing. Such as? From uh, the policy of certain leather gay bars to exclude transvestites, to avowed employment discrimination against gays by uh, private industry. We very early decided as a strategic focus to uh, work for the enactment of civil rights legislation in the New York City Council. There were therefore uh, protests focused in the three main areas that our legislation would address. We protested discrimination in employment, in, it, in housing, and in places of public accommodations. So you were in your at early the, 20s then? Well, at the time, I, I guess I was, I was uh, 20. Mm -hmm. 69, 70, I guess I was, uh, when I first started, I was 19 yeah. in GIA. Fearless time of life. And, uh, yeah, but, uh, and it was also in a very idealistic era mm -hmm. where young people felt we could change the world. Um, I want to ask you about an NYU protest. Uh, you, where you broke into the hall where the mayor was speaking. It was my 21st birthday. Mm -hmm. There had been some raids, uh, the police were out going wild, raiding the bars. They did this each year as uh, the elections started to roll around. They want to build up their statistics for uh, the coming elections to show the police are making arrests and they're arresting all these perverts. Those are the sorts of things that they'd say in the New York Times. Anyway, we had already reached the point where we weren't going to just stand by and let this stuff happen. And um, there was a big uproar at 1 Sheridan Square, which was a bar, and, and the police had physically beat some gay people who were there. 
those attacks and the, the police brutality against the gays was the inspiration for the demonstration at NYU against John Lindsay. Who was then running for president or not yet? September 17th, 1971. The election was... 72. Two. Yeah, he was testing the waters and there, there was talk about it. In any event, we, we had our demonstration um, uh, outside and we set up our picket lines and we had scores of people. People were having trouble getting inside. I mean, we wanted to go into the hall and, um, and, and have a protest. Mm -hmm. There was a pretty quickly uh, organized uh, protest. Mm -hmm. Everybody was having trouble getting inside. Somehow or another, I got inside. Uh, I mean, All by yourself. I mean, you're, you were yeah. the only one to get in. Yeah. What, maybe a thousand people sitting in the audience, and, and the mayor was up at the podium talking. Well, there I was. What was I going to do? It was just me. So naturally, I did what anyone else would do. I walked onto the stage, and I took the podium away from John Lindsay. <laughs> <laughs> I walked up right next to him. And I uh, said, uh, so the audience could hear, the police are brutalizing gay people three blocks away from where we're sitting. Oh, the, and, and the, the police um, harassment and, and attacks were even going on that night. That was one of the points that I made. I wasn't there very long, but what I said made an impression. The police dragged me off the back of the stage and they ejected me through, you know, some, some or another uh, exit. Apparently, after I left, the audience called the mayor to account for what was going on with the police bothering the gay community. And um, apparently, John Lindsay had made a statement that uh, he would permit me to speak. If, if I wonder, of course, he knew darn well the police had already thrown me out. Didn't realize that I would come back. <laughs> and I, I, I snuck back in. I mean, I broke through the security lines again. I, I can't tell you how I did it, but I got back in. And I came right down that aisle. <laughs> and I could see him looking up from the podium at me. <laughs> You know, biting his lip and saying, oh, shit, here he comes again. And I walked right back up on stage and I said to him, I understand you said I can speak. <laughs> and he said yes, and he yielded the podium to me. And I uh, addressed the audience about the police brutality and, and the harassment we were facing, and I said my piece, I thanked them, and I left as surreptitiously as I'd entered. Where did you get the guts to do that? It had to be done. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it was a matter of, of simply believing that it was the right thing to do that political protest was going to bring some uh, cure mm -hmm. to the problems we were facing. 
See, I, I had this thing with John Lindsay. Somehow or another, we have encounter after encounter face to face. The problems were ongoing and he wasn't giving us the kind of... He started, we started getting some, some real restraint by the police following a number of these demonstrations. Mm -hmm. And there was a definite uh, cause and effect here. Mm -hmm. um, I think the component in all of this is anger that there was sufficient anger. There's sufficient anger today, even more deeply felt now because of AIDS, because people have died. Uh, people are hurt. Mm -hmm. You see your friends all around you dying. Has that had a significant impact for you? Yeah, I guess it has. Is there something I shouldn't ask? It affects all of us. I mean, I've got one friend who uh, probably goes to a funeral, you know, every two weeks. I mean, it's 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 devastating. Well, what about you? I mean, in terms of your friends, have you had friends? Yeah, yeah. We all have, haven't we? Yeah. College friends, um, but I've been spared the immediate friends, and I haven't. Uh, my lover's fine. Uh, my best friend's lover has AIDS, so it's that close. But it hasn't. Uh, we went and got tested last year, and we both were shocked by the the, the results. Um, he came out in San Francisco. I came out in New York, and the statistics were not in my favor. Mm. Um, I still thank God every morning because, given the statistics, I should not, I shouldn't even be alive. What have we lost? 65,000 people so far? Mm -hmm. And uh, a million of us? A million of us? It's not all gays, but um, a million people, they say, are infected now. Mm -hmm. Do you ever wonder what would have happened if not for the work you and many others did in the late 60s and early 70s? If AIDS had happened in pre-1970 times? Well, if there hadn't been a movement, we would be ill-prepared to deal with, uh, with it. Not that we, we, we've had uh, the kind of resources we should have to deal with it today, but at least we've got our own infrastructure that's been there. Yeah, I thought about that. You know, a few years ago, when the hysteria was much greater, we had these lunatics calling for uh, gays or people infected with AIDS to be put in a concentration camp kind of setting. There, there, was, there was some popularity to that uh, idea. There, 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 there was no telling how things would have been like. What was that old the Jimmy Stewart movie where... It's a Wonderful it's Life. It's a, a Wonderful Life. I mean, you could make those kinds of leaps of imagination what would have been had we not. Would have been pretty horrendous. I think 
The uh, existence of the AIDS crisis has given a lot of bigots fodder. I mean, they, they've used it to justify in their own minds and in their pandering to prejudice. They've used the AIDS issue to camouflage their prejudice or to justify it. But I, I, think, I think we've done pretty good, at least holding you know, back that pressure to uh, backtrack. Sometimes it's hard to ask the next question. That's what happened when I brought up the subject of AIDS with Morty Manford. You can't see it because this is audio, but what I saw in that moment was that Morty's eyes quickly filled with tears. And that's why I asked him if AIDS was something I shouldn't ask about. From Morty's reaction, I wondered whether he knew yet that he had AIDS, but I didn't feel comfortable asking him directly. Still, I always wondered. So in preparing this episode, I wrote to Morty's sister, Suzanne Swan, to ask her whether he knew. Suzanne told me that just a couple of weeks before I interviewed Morty, when she was home for Thanksgiving, Morty told her that he had what he called the plague. In the spring of 1992, not long before the original edition of Making Gay History was published, I got a call from Morty's mother. Jean told me that Morty was dying and that one of the things that upset him was that he felt that no one would know about his contributions to the LGBTQ civil rights movement, that he'd be forgotten. I asked Jean if she'd like to have a copy of the pre-publication galleys of Morty's chapter from my book so she could read it to him. He was already too ill to read it himself. She said yes, and later told me how happy he was to know that his story wouldn't be lost to history. You've just heard only a slice of a slice. There's so much more, and you can read more of Morty's story in my book. Whenever I think of Morty, I picture him on his 21st birthday, standing by himself at the back of an auditorium filled with a thousand people, the mayor of the city of New York up at the podium, and then he does what few of us would have the courage to do, walks up on stage and takes the podium away from the mayor and addresses the audience. I like to think that this is Morty's legacy, to inspire us all to have the courage to take whatever opportunities we have to challenge injustice, to ask ourselves in moments when our courage flags, WWMD, what would Morty do? Morty Manford died on May 14, 1992. He was 41 years old. Jean Manford lived another 21 years and died at age 92. This is the final episode of our third season. While we're on hiatus, have a listen to the episodes you may have missed during our first and second seasons. You can find all our episodes at makinggayhistory.com. That's also where you'll find additional information and photos for each of the people we've featured. We can't begin to thank you enough for your help spreading the word about Making Gay History. This podcast has been downloaded in 206 countries and territories around the world by you. Thank you. And thanks also for your supportive emails telling us how you've been inspired by the stories you've heard. Your emails have inspired us to keep working hard to share stories from the Making Gay History archive. Making Gay History is a team effort. Thank you to executive producer Sarah Burningham and audio engineer Ann Pope, we had production assistance from the amazing Josh Gwynn. Our theme music was composed by Fritz Myers. 
Thank you also to our social media strategist, Will Coley, our webmaster, Jonathan Dozier-Ezel, researchers, Bronwyn Pardis and Zachary Seltzer, and thank you to our intrepid photo editor, Michael Green. A very special thank you to our guardian angel, Jenna Weiss-Berman, who's been there every step of the way. The Making Gay History podcast is a co-production of Pineapple Street Media with assistance from the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division and One Archives at the USC Libraries. Season three of this podcast has been made possible with funding from the Ford Foundation, which is on the front lines of social change worldwide. If you like what you've heard, tell your friends or give us a shout out on social media. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr. And to find out what we're cooking up next, subscribe to our newsletter. You can find the link for that at makinggayhistory.com. If you're still listening, I know you're a tried and true Making Gay History fan. And so I also know that you will get a kick out of this. Guess what Morty named his dog? Yes, nice to see you too. Yes. Zap. Come on. Okay, down. And if you don't know what a zap was, it's what the Gay Activist Alliance called their trademark protests. So long, until next time.